So Father, I just thank you for the truth that regardless of how we feel, the words we just sang and the words that our brother Mark just challenged us with and encouraged us with, Lord, are true. That your apostle John said, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you would have life in his name. And I feel like we live so often, Lord, so far from the abundant life that belief in you promises. In this season that we enter into where we get to see just the majesty of, of your first incarnation, of your, of your coming, of all that you did to, to live and die and rise again, that we would have victory, that we would be able to believe. Lord, I pray that you would use the season to help us see you in a new light, to help us see the beauty and the majesty that is the grace that is lavished upon us in your Son, Jesus Christ, that we would simply believe you are who you say you are. We are who you say we are. You have done for us what you say you have done. It is finished, paid in full. Lord, as we open your word and continue to worship, may we believe it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Please have a seat and open up your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. So we're in this, in this um, series that we're in in John, and we'll be in it the next couple of weeks before we start into the Advent season that will point us towards His second coming, His second Advent. Um, but today we are in John chapter 8 in a scene um, that is um, probably, probably very well known, but somewhat controversial. So I want to... Um, tell you today's message is entitled sent to sin no more but it's a passage of scripture that many of your bibles might have a footnote in so i want to address that because some of your bibles will say in in um in the footnote or in the notes of your of your bible to say that some of the manu like you might have a parenthesis around the scripture because it says some of the manuscripts the um, early manuscripts did not contain these verses and then later they were added or if they were there they were in a different section um, one of the things, I, I guess I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it, there's an insert in your Bible about the authority of Scripture and, and how we can trust the inspired Word of God. I just love the fact that we as believers in Jesus can come to, can come to this book and wrestle through some things and say, you know what, we're not trying to hide anything here, but we are open and honest. What I will also tell you is that most, most if not, well, not all, but most biblical scholars that I um, really enjoy would say that even if this scripture were not put here in the gospel in John chapter 8, and there are good reasons to believe it belongs here that I won't go into, they would say that it is certainly inspired, and if nothing else, it does nothing to contradict anything that we would expect Jesus to do. And, and that's why I love it so much, that, that the answer, that the reality is we're not going to see, we're going to look at this 11 verses, and we're at the end of the day, and we're going to go, of course Jesus acted that way. And that's what I love about this piece of scripture. But I did kind of want to talk about that right off. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, don't turn there, it'll come up on the screen, it says, therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you get nothing else out of today, remember that verse. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The therefore is because of the gospel of grace, if you know Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. It's what Mark said. There is nothing we can do to make God love us less. There is nothing we do that makes God love us more. 
And we're going to see that picture in spades. And because of that, hopefully my prayer this week for us has been that we would see the beauty of God's grace in a new way, even, even because we are addressing and looking at the magnitude of our own sin issues. And, and that would lead us into this Thanksgiving week, Thanksgiving's on Thursday, believe it or not, asking this question. When is the last time you truly thanked Jesus for his complete, unmerited, unending, sacrificial forgiveness? When is the last time you truly thanked him for his complete, unmerited, unending, sacrificial forgiveness? Because as Christians, we have everything in that. So let's look at our first point. In the first verse, the first point is coming at the gracious one. And we're going to see these men that are going to be coming at Jesus in a hard way, like we've seen many times already in this gospel. If you pick it up in verse 1-8, it says, But Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives. I'm going to back up a step and say, at the very end of verse 53 of chapter 7, it says, Jesus had no home. And then it goes on, it says, um, I'm sorry, it says, um, that they all went to their homes. But because Jesus had no home, it says Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. When I was in Israel in May, I was, able, I was blessed to be able to go and, and, and sit on the um, old wall of Jerusalem and look out at the Mount of Olives across the um, Kidron Valley. I'm not sure. There we go. So, uh, if, so the top two pictures are me sitting on the wall, the old wall of Jerusalem. The, the hill in the background is the Mount of Olives. The bottom picture is me on the Mount of Olives looking back at the Temple Mount. Jesus would cross back and forth there. It wasn't very far. We walked it several times over and over during his ministry. So we see that first thing in, the, in chapter 1, or in, cha- in verse 1 of chapter 8. Now pick it up in verse 2. It says, Early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach. It's interesting, so, so early in the morning, he leaves the Mount of Olives, he goes up into the temple, that, and you'll see some pictures, this, these are some pictures of, of what is left of the temple mount, um, and, and I want to just point out a couple things. One, first, first part of verse two, early in the morning, I, you, you know me well enough to know, if any of you have been discipled by me or spent any time with me, you know that, that time, starting the day in the Word every day is a huge thing for us, we talk about it all the time early in the morning while it was still dark. You know, that was Jesus' practice. So Jesus practiced what he preached. People say, well, where do you get biblically, where do you get this idea of getting up early to be with the Lord? I would say here's a great example of that. Um, beginning each day seeking the face of God. George Mueller, who read through the Bible more than 200 times in his life, said this, how different would be our lives if we really began each day with God? Thus only can we obtain the fresh supply of grace which will give the needed strength for the duties and conflicts of the hours that follow. Charles Spurgeon, I think it was Spurgeon who said, I refuse to look in the face of another until I've looked in the face of my God. And he was talking about being in the word of God. The other thing is he sat down. We see that at the end of verse 2. He sat down. Sitting down was a sign back in that culture. So he's in this big courtyard of the temple. Sitting down was, was a sign in that culture that a rabbi was about to say something important. This was not just like a casual, hey, I'm going to sit down and whoever wants to come over. A crowd had gathered, like they were already, every time he'd show up now, a crowd would gather. And when he sits down, they get quiet because he's about to teach. So this is a very formal teaching session in one of the large courtyards that is in the outside of the temple. It says then in verse 3, it says, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, 
This woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, the, the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? So here he is, he's teaching to a large crowd, a very formal setting, and they just burst in, they drag this poor woman in, set her right in the middle of the crowd. It's important that you get the scene here for what we're going to see in a minute. Set her right in the middle of the crowd, they turn to him and they say, here's what the law says, what do you say we're supposed to do with him? They have no respect for his teaching, they, have, they, they, they could have, they, and they have no respect for, his, for the heart of God. They could have waited until he was done, Pulled him if he was if she was if he was really if they were really concerned about his opinion, they would have pulled him aside after he was done teaching and said, "Hey, we want to get your advice on this issue," but they didn't. They have they have orchestrated this whole event because they are trying to trap him. They are trying to trap him, and we're going to see that. And and they and and just as is divinely orchestrated, he sets it up as a beautiful picture of his grace. It says that. They say to him, we caught this woman in the very act. We all know what that means. I'm going to keep it family friendly. Here's the thing. If that's true, where's the man? Because Hebrew law, the law, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, it says this. If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. And in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, it says the same thing. So they were by duty obligated to bring the man and the woman. They don't. Why? Because they have no interest in upholding the law. They're out to trap Jesus. I love how Arthur Pink, who was a British Bible teacher in the 1800s, he says this. I think it's important for us to know this. Let us not be deceived then and conclude that everyone who quotes Scripture to us is necessarily a God-fearing man. Those who quote the Scriptures to condemn others are frequently the guiltiest of all. Those who are so solicitous to point to the speck in one another's eye, in another's eye generally have a beam in their own. You know, what did Satan do to Jesus in the wilderness? He quoted scripture to him to try to get him to, to sin. They have no respect for Jesus. They have no interest in the holiness of God. They are not sitting here going, we're the righteous ones upholding the law. They are all about trying to trap Jesus. Look at your being community, which is on the back of your connecting points that you're hopefully taking notes on. Being community is sort of that so what of what, how do we make that personal. It says in Ephesians 4, Paul tells us to speak the truth in love so that the whole body can grow up together in Christ. Encouragement and correction are both part of the one another's that we hold to so firmly here at Cornerstone. Guys, the one another's are not just about speaking kind words to each other. Right? We are told to exhort and encourage. We're also told to admonish and to correct. Because we need that. I need that in my life. You, we all need that in our lives. So it's part of that. However, to go on, truth alone only brings death. So even as we encourage one another to live distinctly different lives, we must remind one another that in our failures, there's a, there is God's great, redeeming, all-sufficient grace. That's what I loved about what Mark shared before that last song. Guys, it isn't about our worthiness. It is about what he has done to make us worthy. Look at uh, verse six, the first part of verse 6 of John 8. It says, They were saying this to test, testing him so that they might have grounds to accuse him. The, words, the, word, the phrase they're testing him is the Greek word parazo. And in this ver form of the verb there, the Greek word parazo, in this form of the verb there, it actually means to try to trap, to try to trap, to attempt to catch in a mistake. They don't, they're not interested in his opinion about the scripture. 
They are looking for a reason to accuse him. Here's the tension of the moment, though, and I, I really want you guys to get this. Here's the tension of the moment. If he doesn't, so, so, so get it. He's teaching. There's a huge crowd. They intentionally wait for that to happen. They drag this poor woman in. They point out her sin in front of everybody. But then they go to him and they say, this is what the law says. What are you going to do about it? If he does nothing, which is what they think he's going to do, they're going to say, wait a second. How can you, not, how can you be a God-fearer? How can you be a rabbi, a teacher of the law, and not uphold the law? They're going to say, wait a minute, aren't you the one who said in Matthew 5, which was, which was earlier than this scene, aren't you the one that said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law? So they're going to point that out in front of everybody. But if he judges her, then they're going to point out, but wait a minute, didn't you say in John chapter 3 that the Son of Man did not come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world? So they think they've got him either way. If he does... if. If, they, if he denies punishing her, then he is saying, let sin reign. If he says, let's stone her, let's do what the law says and let's stone her, then his popularity as a rabbi of compassion, which is why the crowds were coming to him, is completely ruined. So they think, man, we've got him. Here's, here's what's interesting in view of what, like we see it now and we go, well, no, that's none of that's right. But in, in their context, prior to the cross, they don't know what the solution is. But Jesus does. And so in that moment, he is, he is sitting there and he's thinking, okay, how am I going to handle this? I'm sure he's probably praying to his father. Father, give me the words to say to these people so that I know what to say. And, and in view of, of what we know, he's got this whole thing covered. But they don't know how that's going to work. Right? For us in our lives, though, we need, to, we need to be careful to speak the truth in love, but speak the truth in love. We need to be careful. Like We, we do need to be prepared to give a defense for those, who have a, who, for those who accuse us or who, those who have a question. But what does Peter tell us? With gentleness and respect. Right? We know that God's got this covered. Whatever this is that people are coming at us with, even like they were coming at Jesus. But here's the question. How does the gospel, that they don't believe in yet, how does the gospel change the tension in the room? The tension of, because this is really the question of the day for us in this passage. How do we get past God as a holy, just, righteous God who judges sin and grace covers everything? That's the dilemma. That's the gospel. Jesus has that gospel in mind because he knows that God has, has a path past that dilemma. Does that make sense? That we live in the tension of. If you were here or late spring, early summer, we were going through the, the book of Job, and you remember all this bad stuff happens to Job, and then Job's friends show up to, to try to give him feel-good advice, and Eliphaz is the first one, and basically he says, he says, you've got unconfessed sin in your life, brother. That's why everything, that's why you lost your kids. That's why you lost your business. That's why you lost your home. And, he, and, then, and then Eliphaz points this out to Job. Who was there that, who innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? This is Eliphaz telling Job, Job, the re because you're suffering, there must be sin in your life. And we talked about how, how that is an Old Testament, old school, old world way of looking at things before the cross. Because the truth is, one who is innocent did perish. One who is innocent did suffer, and his name was not Job, his name was Jesus Christ. And Jesus knows that that's what's going to happen. 
God's solution to the dilemma of what do we do about this sin thing because I'm a just righteous God and how do we get to grace is the cross of Jesus Christ. And they don't know that yet. Here's the problem. We have minimized sin in the church. Even in the Christian church, we have minimized sin. We have erased judgment and hell. Because it's not popular. It does not sell. It does not grow your church. It does not sound friendly. So we have only about, guys get this, only about 50% of professing evangelicals in our country believe that hell is real. Only about 50% of your friends that say they are Christians even believe that hell is real. Here's the problem. If hell's not real, what is Jesus for? How can you be a Christian and believe in the gospel and not believe in hell? There is no need for grace. There is no need for the cross. There is no any gospel story unless God is a judge, God judges sin and hell is real. That's the, but, but the problem is we have kind of gotten away from that message. And I think it's important that I take a minute and, and remind you of that. Just, just write these um, verses down. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I'm not going to have you turn there in the interest of time, but I'm just going to read it for you. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, it says this. Therefore... Uh, this is Paul speaking, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. The prisoner, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel by which you have been called. And then he goes on and, and shares what that looks like. In humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance with one another, being diligent to preserve the unity of the faith. He goes in, in his letter to the Thess Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians, he says it this way. He says, I, I employ, he's talking to them again. This is in 1 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12, if you're taking notes. 1 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12. And he says, you are witnesses as to how devoutly, uprightly, and blamelessly we behaved toward you. He's saying, guys, when I was there, I was, I was living out the gospel. So then he says, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Guys, our behavior matters to God. Sin matters to God. We, we cannot read this passage where it's going to go here in a minute and not, and not take, to that, take into that passage that, okay, well, God is all, you know, Jesus is all just love. There is no judgment. There is no, you know, that, that God, God, Jesus taught on judgment more than any other person in the Bible. In fact, he taught on judgment and hell. That was one of his top two topics to teach on while he was here. And yet, there are people who are, who, are, who are preaching to thousands that say Jesus does not judge. I'm like, what do you do with Revelation 19? Because when he comes back, and his hair is white, and his eyes are aflame, and his tongue is a sword, and it's not just that the mountains will melt like wax before the Lord, that's Jesus, but he is going to slay. He is going to slay those who have not come to know him. Why? Because that's what we all deserve apart from him. That is judgment. That is Jesus. But there's the other half of that, and that is grace. And it's a free gift that's offered up. So let's get there. That's where my question to, guys, I share all that to say, to me, 
The answer to our question today, today's question is, when is the last time you truly thank Jesus for his complete, unmerited, unending, sacrificial forgiveness? That forgiveness becomes so much bigger, becomes so much more beautiful, becomes so much more powerful when I realize what a stinking affront my sin is to a holy God. If I skip that and I just go over here to the grace, grace is small. Yeah, it's, it's, just, it's, just a, it's just like a little coating on, on a piece of bread that's got a few holes in it. I'm a giant mess. But God, rich in mercy, showed his great love towards us that while Doug was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Christ died for you. That is the gospel. In Romans 5, again, just take notes, in Romans 5 and the end of Romans 5 and verse 6, where Paul is outlining the gospel, he says this. Because the, here's, the, here's, the, here's the other tension in the dilemma, guys. If, wait a minute. If, if grace covers everything, then why, then why does our behavior matter? And there's another movement out there in, the, in Christianity called the free grace movement that says your behavior does not matter at all. You're saved by grace. It's all, grace covers everything, so don't worry about it. Come as you are, stay as you are. Now, they may not say it that way, but that's what they're preaching. But Paul says in, at the end of Romans 5, in the beginning of chapter 6, is he says, the law, where, these, where the Pharisees took this woman, here, the law says the stoner, the law was there to point out our need, our sin, that, that our sin would seem bigger to us. Because, because the law tells us this is what we're supposed to look like. And we all look at that and go, I cannot measure up. That's what Mark shared with us. And the answer is, no, you can't. But what does Paul tell us in Ephesians or in, in Romans 6? He says, so what should we do? Just sin more so grace looks even more beautiful? What's he say? God forbid. He says the same power that saved us, that grace, is the same power to make us wor wor walk worthy. And that brings us to our second point. So they're coming at the gracious one going, what are you going to do about this mess? Our last point, our second and our last only other point is going in sin, the sin-freeing grace of the gospel. So look at the second half of verse 6. It says, but Jesus stooped down with his finger on, he stooped down and with his finger he wrote on the ground. Now there's a lot, maybe your, maybe your little super study Bible has some notes about what he was writing. There's a lot of white space theology about that. Nobody really knows what he was writing. Many people believe, and I tend to believe too, that he was writing the Ten Commandments out in the dirt. Just one at a time. And I, and I like that imagery because in Exodus chapter 31, where, he's talking, where it's talking about the actual tablets of the Ten Commandments, how does it say they were written? By the finger of God. So I love that picture of here's Jesus, God incarnate, on the ground. I'm not going to get there today, unfortunately. But on the ground, he's writing out, and I picture him writing out the Ten Commandments one at a time. And they're frustrated because they're like, wait a minute. We just came to you and told you what the law is. You don't need to write out the law. So, so they keep questioning him. In verse 7, but when they persisted in asking him, he straightens up, he stands back up, and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, guys, that is one of the most misquoted verses in Scripture because here's what happens. Every time we go to confront, admonish, call sin, sin, what often comes back to us? Yeah, don't judge. Don't cast stones. Don't write. This is not, this is not a Scripture saying don't judge sin. 
We cannot use it for that. And you'll see, you'll see that that's not what Jesus meant either when he says that. This is a scripture saying, evaluate your life prior to going and worrying about someone else's. Because here's the truth. Who's the only one in the courtyard who is eligible to cast a stone based on what he said? He is. And we're going to see that he does not do that. But we are called, we are called, and I've made this clear already so I won't continue to belabor it, we are called to judge and confront sinful behavior. Jesus never condoned sin. Never. Right? To call, and I'm going to say this part one more time, to, to, to not call sin, sin, and just jump to grace is to miss the beauty and the power that the gospel gives us. Right? That, 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 we, we, that, that we miss the victory we have unless we realize that we, have, that we have a need for a victory. We have, we have so turned this concept around of God doesn't judge, of there is no hell, of, like, that we're actually, we as a society, we as a culture, we even as a church culture, have actually gotten to a point where we're angry with God. How, how, could, how could, I mean, how many times have you heard this? How could a loving God be so judgmental? Right? Like, we have blamed him. You know, the most popular sermon ever preached was um, Jonathan Edwards in 1750-something preached sinners in the hands of an angry God. I was reading an article the other day about that and just what a powerful, um, to that, that started the first great awakening in our country. And yet what we've done is we've turned it around and we've said God in the hands of an angry sinner. We have looked at God and we've said, I blame you, God, for this mess. I blame you for being judgmental. When he is the one who brings, he's not only brings the justice, but he is the justifier. He brings the way that we get the victory. Look at the engage in the call section. That's the now what. As we walk out and, we, and what do we do with all this? It says all the parts of the gospel of grace are in John 8, 1 through 11. First and most importantly, the Savior is there as sin is brought into light. So the woman is brought before the Savior. The guilty sinner is indicted by the enemy and the law brings the penalty, death, to bear. Guys, and this is, this is true in our lives as well. Jesus is with us. The enemy, the great deceiver, you're going to read about him in your daily readings this week. He's going to whisper in your ears all these things that lead us to think we're not worthy like Mark talked about. And it says, and finally the Savior graciously pardons as he takes our condemnation upon his cross. We love this story because it is one of grace. The presence of sin makes grace abound. As followers of Christ engaged in his call, we should never condone sin, but we must guard against condemning sinners. Instead, let us be instruments of his grace as we share his gospel. So let's finish up this passage and see where, where Jesus takes it. So, he tells them, don't, don't throw stones. And then, and then in verse 8, he says, Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning, from the older, from, beginning with the older ones. What, I wonder what, again, we don't know he's writing something else. I personally think, there's no, reason, there's no way to know this for sure, that he's writing their names down next to each of the commandments that they would have broken. And as they look, they're like, they look down and they, they see him writing, you know, Doug next to whatever. And they're, and they're like, oh, look at the time. I got to go. And, and they head out because they don't want any part of this anymore. 
Now look, I'll pick it up in the second half of verse 9. And he, and he was left alone. So get the scene in this huge courtyard, huge crowd. Everybody's watching. These men come. They try, to, they try to trap Jesus. He writes the second time. They all leave and it says, He is left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. So she's still standing there. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. The word woman there means dear woman. It's the same word he uses towards his mom at the, at the Feast of Cana we looked at. It's what, he, it's what he calls his mom when he's on the cross. It is, it's not like woman. It's like, dear woman, what, where did they all go? And then, and then you look at her response. It says, no one, Lord. Here's the thing. Why didn't she leave? When all those people that brought her, accused her, left, why didn't she run? Because the only one left that could have accused her was Jesus. Why didn't she run? One, I think she knew she was guilty. She, said, she doesn't say, no one, Lord, because I'm not guilty. She just says, no one, Lord. And she acknowledges him. I believe, I, I, I believe that she had come to realize who Jesus was. That she had come to realize, I don't, I don't know that she got saved in that moment. I'm just saying, I think she realized, here's a man of great compassion and grace. And I want to be nowhere other than next to him. Guys, Jesus does not condemn her. Right? He doesn't. He, what does he say? I, I do not condemn you either. But, but the question, back to the initial tension, but Why? Because if, if, if sin is a sin, and, she, and he calls it a sin, go and sin no more. So it's not like he's saying, he doesn't just pat her on the back and say, you know what, it's okay, sweet girl. I love you and that's all that matters. Right? He's saying, get, get, you need to get your act together. You need to stop this. But at the same time, he says, I don't condemn you. But that doesn't solve the problem. Because the problem is, she sinned. And that has to get dealt with. In that moment, Jesus, I believe, Jesus is already looking ahead to the cross. And what he's saying to this woman is he's saying, I don't condemn you because I will take your condemnation with me on the cross. You don't know. She, he's looking at her and he's going, you don't know it yet, but I've got you covered. A punishment has to be paid and I will pay it for you. That's the gospel, Right? That's where grace and truth find themselves personally, perfectly fit together in the person of Jesus Christ. Right? I, I think that, that whether it's this woman's sin or your sin or my sin, that, that how we get from this, this idea that, that, that a just and holy God has to deal with this issue of sin, and how do we get to grace, there's only one way. And that is that we believe that the perfect God-man came here, lived, died, paid the price for that condemnation that he did not deserve on his cross and then rose again to prove that it worked. Guys, we don't, we don't, it doesn't feel, I mean, I know I've said this a few times already this morning, but it doesn't feel right to talk about God being this judgmental God. But just think about this for a second. From our perspective, from an earthly perspective, with, with human judges, I, 
I made the mistake of looking at one of my news feeds on my phone this week, and I often don't do that, and I don't watch news on television because, well, it's just a downer. And, and, it was a, and it was just a little on the headline, and it was some man somewhere who had killed his four-month-old daughter by punching her and, because she wouldn't stop crying until she died. And then claims she fell out. What, but they find out that it's what, what had happened. They arrest him. He's going to go stand accused in front of that judge. Guys, if that judge says to him, when that day comes in a few weeks, what happened? He says, you know what, I was I just in a fit of rage. I'm sorry, I was wrong. And that judge says to him, it's okay, go home. We would be outraged. Would we not? Would we not go, that is an affront to what justice is. Why do we expect less from God? Why do we expect a completely holy, perfect, righteous God to deal with sin in any less severity? Well, yeah, but, but Doug, I'm not guilty of that. I've never done that. Guys, a, everything we do towards a... Every time I complain about my, my circumstances is an affront to a living God who has orchestrated my circumstances. Every time I look to something else other than Jesus Christ to fulfill some perceived need I have is an affront to the living God who has said, I am everything you need because I'm the one who made you. Guys, every day, throughout the day, I give God reason to squash me. And every day, throughout the day, he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. That is what's happening in this moment with this woman. He looks at her and he says, you deserve to be punished. And in a sense, that punishment is going to be carried out because I am going to take it on my cross. I am going to bear that burden for you because there is no way to get from justice to grace without the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what's happening in the moment we're looking at. Do we see it for that? Guys, there are people in this room right now that are hurting. We're going into the holiday season, and for a lot of us, that's a fun time, and for a lot of people, that's a lonely time. Some of you lost spouses and fathers and, just, and are suffering from terminal illness. And, and, and here's my question, and we're going to wrap it up and go into communion with this. Regardless of all those things that are happening in our lives, whether your life is going great right now or you're one of those people that's really in a dark place right now, here's, here's the question. If all we have in the world is the unending, unchanging, undeserved grace of Jesus Christ, is that enough for you? Is Christ enough? Because for this woman, it was the difference between life and death. And for all of us, all the time, the only difference between hell and damnation and a future eternity with him is believing in the cross of Jesus Christ. So here's what I'd ask you to do. On the back of your connecting points, there's a section there called reacting to his will. And it just asks two questions. What is the Spirit saying to you? And what does Jesus want you to do as we go into this Thanksgiving season with the truth of the beauty of who he is. 
of what he's done for you. How did I start? How did I pray at the beginning? Do we believe he is who he says he is? Do we believe we are who he says we are? Do we believe he did what he said he would do? Because I pray that your reaction to the message, to, what, to the passages that we read today, isn't, oh, my sin is so big. It's, you know what, my sin is so big compared to a holy, and it's an affront to a living God. And that is what makes grace so amazing. Guys, whether it's reflecting on or repenting from some of those things or singing songs of worship like we do or giving our tithes and offering to the Lord or what we're going to do here now is, is take communion together, these are all responses, right? Responses, but responses to what? I believe they're responses to grace. When we get, because we understand what an affront our sin is to God and how he has to deal with it. And then the extent he went to to do that. How can we not respond in thanksgiving? How can we not respond to anything other than going, regardless of how much pain I'm in right now, regardless of the turmoil in my relationships, regardless of my financial situation, I have your grace and I have everything, Jesus. As the couples that are going to be serving communion come up, I'm just going to read this part of a short psalm written by David who, who like few men in Scripture, understood the grace of God. And it's what made him so thankful. Guys, don't push away grace in this moment. Don't go, I don't need it. Every one of us, all the time, every minute, needs the grace of God. We all stand self-condemned. God is not judging you. You judged yourself. He's saving you from judgment. If you'll respond to the gospel. So David says this in Psalm 86. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and listen to the plea for, my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I might walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. I will glorify your name forever. Let's pray. So, Father, I thank you for that truth. Lord, I thank you for the truth that you bridged the gap between justice and damnation by becoming the instrument of justification. Yes, you are a God that must rightly judge sin. Just like we would expect our judges to rightly judge lawbreakers. But you do one better. Because you came here as an instrument of grace, as the instrument of justification, and you said, I will take that condemnation for you. That is the gospel. That is the free gift of grace. And yet there are people sitting right here in this room right now that don't know that, or we're not living in the power and the beauty of that, and we reject that moment by moment. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that today would be the day that we would walk out of here going, yeah, I am a sinner and His grace is amazing. 
And that would make us walk in the power and the victory worthy of the gospel by which we've been called. Father, I thank you for the truth that any who come will receive that grace. I pray right now that those that need prayer, that those that need to talk, would, you would move on their hearts to do that. Whether that be to the people serving communion or to the elders up front after the service. or God, I pray that, that people would not leave here today feeling unworthy. Because that's what you died for. That, that is an affront to you. If we walk out of here feeling anything other than the complete overwhelming beauty of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we celebrate at his table right now, we are falling short of the grace of God. Oh Lord, let us be a people that live in your abundant grace. In Jesus' name, amen.